Welcome to Ascending Olympus, the Edge of the Crowds Olympics and Paralympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie. And today, after Beijing 2022, because it is all over, I'm joined by both Dan and Michelle. So how are you guys tonight? Yeah, I've been good. After Beijing, there's a little bit of a lull where I'm not waking up very late to watch sports that make me nervous, but I'm sure that will be back in my life very, very soon. Yeah, I'd count on it. It's a, it's a very, very brief lull for us here. <laughs> um, we've got all of a week till the Paralympics start. And um, for those who follow some of the other sports going on, there's plenty happening. I'm sad that the Olympics is over. I'm apprehensive about the Paralympics already almost being here and then it's just like there's so much more to happen I've had a good night couple of nights sleep at least now so I'm a little bit more recovered than I was this time last week but we'll start with some more like the finer details of this Olympics so for starters, uh, surprising no one, I made the big call at the start of this Olympics and knew I wasn't going to be incorrect, despite a few nervous days there, <laughs> that Norway finished on top of the medal table with 16 gold medals. They are the first country to ever receive 15 or more at a Winter Olympics, which is a pretty crazy feat. Australia, on the other hand, finished in 18th. Sad part of that is New Zealand was one ahead of us on 17th. The happy part is we beat Great Britain and Great Britain did not receive a medal until the final Saturday of this Olympics. So there was a point there where they were actually like minus one on their medal count because one of their medalists from Tokyo 2020 was stripped of a medal on the last Friday of the game. So that I think was just one of those funny little tidbits to add in. I'm always happy to have beaten the Brits. That's for sure. It's life beating the Americans in a lot of ways. And we've talked about if we combine all of the out LGBT athletes at Beijing 2022, they'd be the 25th biggest Olympic team this year. They also would have finished 12th on the medal table with four gold, two silver and three bronze. It's a little bit dubious as far as they might have one extra silver and one extra bronze because they're counting three hockey medals there. But at the same time, it still would have been four gold, one silver and three bronze if you only count the Canadian gold. It's a, a pretty special achievement. Um, and I mean, for me, losing to New Zealand on the medal table is an absolute tragedy and might be worth a day of mourning. But there should also be a national day of celebration for beating the Brits in the medal tally in my book. So. A Beijing success day, um, declare it uh, Thursday, uh, Friday, 25 February, just after this episode <laughs> goes out. Everyone gets the day off to celebrate the fact that we beat the Brits on the medal tally. We just love to see that Commonwealth solidarity, but then there's Canada who has to ruin it for the rest of us. Yeah, Canada, absolute traitors. I think they finished 11th on the medal table in the end with like four gold medals. And they like beat what their projections were, which also is insulting because every, well, Great Britain obviously did worse than anyone was expecting. But we met our projections, New Zealand, kind of met theirs I'd say the two gold maybe not so much but they were expected to medal at least two to three times we'll get our revenge in the Commonwealth Games at Birmingham in a few months we're going to top that medal tally <laughs> if and we yes, don't I think there will be actually national <laughs> outrage <laughs> and yeah we're counting it's about 200 and something days so um stick with us every week between now and Birmingham Commonwealth Games yeah, we won't just talk about the lead up to the Commonwealth Games. We've got some fun stuff coming up, but 
but <laughs> we'll start with the first item of our on our agenda, which is what are our top five Aussie moments of these games? I don't think that the medals are going to be a surprise. So we're going to start with our gold medalist, Jakara Anthony. Um, I, I mean, she was a podium favorite, but I think the fact that she won every single rung of this, like of the women's moguls competition is insane. And that final run, like you knew as soon as she landed that last trick that we had gold. You knew as soon as she landed the first air on the final <laughs> run. I mean, it was perfect. It was textbook perfect. And we knew as she went into that middle section of moguls that she was on fire. She was riding the bumps the way she wanted to. She was carving the way she wanted to. And it was, I mean, that, that's the kind of ride that you put into a textbook and say, this is how you skier moguls run. Yeah, it's kind of that amazing moment of being like, like the nerves of like how she would do as the competition progressed basically vanished. You weren't like, oh my God, has she done too well here? And is she going to like falter later? It was just like, nah, we're fine. We're cool. We're good. Nah, at, at no point did those nerves falter. That That's just not like, until the score flashed up there that like we knew there was a big part of me that was like, are we going to get screwed by the judges? <laughs> are we going to be like just a little bit short right up until they flashed up with that yellow number one? And then I finally took a breath. <laughs> I mean, we've still got a few competitions left in the Moguls this season, so she could end up also winning the World Cup. Um, but on top of that, how good is it to watch Moguls Under Lights? Because a lot of the World Cup events are during the middle of the day, but Moguls Under Lights, it just it hits different, and it's one of the specialties of the Olympics. I mean, it's a little bit weird. Like, I always grew up day skiing. Um, to see night skiing is <laughs> always a little bit weird. It's something that doesn't really feel natural um it's one of the things that actually does take kind of away a little bit in my mind like one of the things about watching like local football is that you know you've got the hills it's the same ovals that you play you're like i could have done that um you see you know some of the athletes in the winter olympics can be injured there you're like i could have thought not, not all of them scotty james not you not jackie narricott not you but like moguls, I'm like, yeah, I could get down there. Not as quickly, not as stylishly, and probably not in one piece. At night, not so much. Do you remember the professional mogul skier and former silver medalist Matt Graham broke his collarbone on the moguls? Really think it's that easy? Hey, I said I could do it. I didn't say I could do it as quickly or in one piece. <laughs> okay. Okay. But you did mention our silver medalist. We'll start with Jackie Narricott because that was the medal surprise prize of these games i don't think that there was actually a bigger medal shock on almost any podium than jackie narricott snatching silver and leading at the halfway point of the competition as well so i mean it's our first ever olympic sliding medal it was in skeleton specifically and i think that we all thought that if a sliding medal was going to come it was going to come from the monobob but two days earlier jackie narricott went and did it made history you and I sat, or well, I sat right here um, at about two in the morning on that Sunday morning as we relived that moment. And we were just in shock. I mean, it was, it was incredible. There's, there's not much else to say. We're not often speechless on this podcast. We've got words for just about <laughs> everything. But Jackie Narricott Silver did kind of escape us. All I remember is just waking up just to see like a gajillion exclamation points and just like, capitalizations <laughs> for like hours. I will not apologize for what happened in the group chat that night. I will not. Oh. Uh, but we're going to go to Scotty James, our other silver medalist. And look, I think that 
whether he should have been leading after that second run is dubious. I know a lot of people don't agree with the judges' scores, blame the US judge for it. Uh, but at the same time, like he put down two really incredible runs out of these three runs on the men's halfpipe final. And to lose to someone like Ayumi Hirano, who had two Olympic silver medals already, it's kind of like, oh, it's bittersweet, but also like this is someone that also deserved that gold medal after years and years of hard work. And was that his fourth Olympic Games? Because he's also a skateboarder. I was going to say, we should point out that Ayumi Hirano doesn't just (laughs) compete at the Winter Olympics. He was at Tokyo. (laughs) <laughs> a few months ago and that's a pretty impressive turn to be able to go from skateboarding to I know the boards are not that different and kind of the concepts of, of how you do it and the movements are not that different but they're not that similar either it's not like it's easy to go half pipe to skate park you know the next day just casually and Scotty James was was fantastic although as good as he was it's probably fair to say he was the fourth biggest story out of that half pipe final which is nuts because to me to my mind Ayumi Hirano was a bigger story than him Sean White's final Olympic run was a massive story and who can forget the 16 year old Valentino Giselli who shows that he's every chance of following in James's footsteps if Scotty doesn't want to go around again I mean, Scotty has said that he's keen to go around again. And I mean, now he's like looking for the full medal set. So I think it's even better that he's going like going to go for a fifth Olympics if he's fit and well. But Valentino's good enough that in a few years time, he could have those tricks in the bag. Yeah, just a really kind of fun time. You can tell that those two, um, Ayumu and Scotty, are just going to be like accumulating more hardware over the coming years. And then like, you know, they've both got like considerable little kind of collections there already. So it will be interesting to see how they go forth. Um, obviously, um, both of them have other tricks up their sleeve that hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to see also in the coming um, in the next four years leading up as well. And I'm sure Valentina will be right on their heels being like, <laughs> I've got you if you're not careful. Yeah, 2026, I'm like, it's either going to be a double Australian podium or a double Hirano podium because I could see Ayumu and Kaishu Hirano both making that podium as well. And, and there remains the genuine possibility if they all go around again of a Hirano podium sweep. Obviously, there's only two brothers, but there are three of them named Hirano in the race. And I mean, a Hirano podium sweep would be something that would live in this podcast forever. I think like <laughs> as, as like a newcomer to like Halfpipe and watching the Halfpipe, I'm like, I kind of just want to watch the rest of the events throughout the season in hopes for a Hirano podium sweep in general. <laughs> like it doesn't even have to be the Olympics. I just need that to be like a fact that happened. Japanese yeah. nationals. That's my bet. <laughs> I mean, there's other, there's also other people not named Hirano. I know, but there's your best chance. Like, we'll move on to Tess Cody. Her winning the snowboard slope style bronze medal when it was looking like she might not medal at all in that event, but it came down to that final run, and it was a beautiful final run as well on top of that uh it's come out like since the olympics i think it was in the last couple of days but since she arrived home that she was actually snowboarding on a fractured foot or fractured ankle which like she she posted on her instagram like the ice bath for her foot and it was pretty bruised up and that sort of thing and i was like oh it's like a sprain like something like that something that's painful 
but not like broken bones painful <laughs> which is again it's just like there's competing in both the slipstyle and the big air because Tess was also in the big air event made that final um and did reasonably well except for that final crash where she basically landed on her head um but she got up from that as well on top of it so I think it was a really good Olympics for Tess but that slope style event was just I loved that so much Tess winning a bronze on a broken foot is the next um piece of evidence that's going in the file of athletes are not like the rest of us um it's a very very thick file at this point and you know we've only been on this podcast for 11 months but it's a pretty uh fat file and that was I mean, just incredible the way that she went through. And I, I have to say, I loved the the camaraderie that they had at the bottom of the run. So Tess obviously didn't win and it came down to the very final run of the competition for Zoe. But the way that they all embraced at the bottom, it's one of those kind of moments of the friendship that, that goes into the Olympics and not just the competition. Yeah, it's kind of a really like fun little narrative over there. Always, once again, terrifying when you think someone's done like, you know, a performance of their careers. And then they're like, well, you guys, you know, I've been injured as well. And you're like, okay, two things. First of all, you did that on an injury. Second of all, you mean to tell me you could have done better if you weren't injured? (laughs) And also on top of that, like that slope style venue uh, was stunning. Like the Great Wall of China motif, especially with that actual watchtower feature. I was just like, you could not design a slope style course that looks better. And I know that the half pipe was called Secret Garden. I wish that the slope style course had a name that was as cool as Secret Garden because it, it was worthy of it. It was good enough looking to have a really cool name as well. Uh, and we'll move to the last of our top Aussie moments, which was Brendan Carey uh, improving in his third Olympics. Uh, so he didn't make the free scale, finished 29th in his first, finished 20th in 2018, and then finished 18th with a close to personal best score in his short program a massive personal best score in his free skate which resulted in a massive personal best score for his combined as well well the one thing we always say about brendan is that if he goes clean he's really can like be up there with some of kind of his competitors that we think of as more favorites for the top 10 and that kind of thing um and i think you did see that in his free skate where he was clean no edge calls no under rotations all his levels so like it really showed off the best of what he could deliver um and that i think comes with both like experience from the three olympics um but also you know uh some level of being kind of contentment with where his career's at probably where he's just like you know I've done all this I've gotten here and like I obviously want to improve but I've like you know it's been a good run for me and like we don't know whether or not like he will continue on to Milano and what his kind of plans are in the next quad but he should be really happy with how he's done here um also being the flag bearer for Australia obviously yeah I think that the flag bearer thing was probably like an added confidence boost probably um and I think it was also really great getting to listen to an Australian that knows their stuff about figure skating um because Belinda Noonan's reaction to his skate was also just like heartwarming as well yeah absolutely I mean his to to be able to pull together a a career best um in the free skate and come so close in the short program is really great reward for what's been a a pretty challenging season for Brennan but he's stuck at it and you know that's pretty good symbol for his career because it's been 
a tough grind the whole way for him. He hasn't had anything given to him or, or anything like that, but he's continued to work hard. And now that he has finally gone clean on this, you know, hopefully that's a, a sign that things are going to be clean in the future going forward. And we're going to see even better from Brendan over the next quarter. Yeah. And he also has injuries. Like I'm pretty sure he was injured at this Olympics. He missed out on worlds last year because he broke his foot. Um, so on top of that, like, yes, that was 10 months ago, but there's still like recovery and rehab and everything. And he did re-heard it, I believe in December. So it's also like, you've done that while injured, which means you possibly could have done even better. Although nothing looked particularly tentative from him, but also like on top of that, um, we also got to see like Nathan Chen's redemption, which resulted in a gold medal, an Olympic gold medal. Um, and we got to see the quad axle attempted it was not landed but it was attempted by Yuzuru Hanyu so it was like it was a good men's figure skating event this year um it went a little bit to script because I think everything that did happen as far as like that top four is concerned both with like Nathan winning Yuma getting silver Shoma managing to beat Yuzuru because the quad axle is a cruel mistress as well as the quad sale just being broken in the short program <laughs> um, so yeah I think that that's one of those events that went to script but Brendan going clean and as like as well as he did not actually normally a part of the script when it comes to figure skating the other thing that's probably not part of the script and not so much a highlight was probably what happened to Vincent Zoe, who was also probably one of those favorites for a higher position close to the podium maybe on the podium if he was lucky the fact that he kind of tested positive for COVID right after his team event um, at least that did mean he got to skate on the Olympic ice and he was also invited to the gala to perform once again but just a very unfortunate series of events there that meant that he ultimately did have to withdraw from the individual event. And so we're not actually going to go straight to the non-Australian moments that were our top five. We're going to talk about three moments that we could not stop talking about during this Olympics. So the first one is not going to surprise anyone because Michelle and I have talked about it at length and had to cut out like probably at least an hour's worth of content <laughs> of the actual podcast episodes because we just talked for so long. And that is the doping scandal involving Camilla Valieva. Um, it's definitely a dishonourable mention for this Olympics. Um, I think that any kind of doping scandal is. But it is also just like a story that we're still going to be talking about probably in six to 12 months time because it's insane that a 15-year-old tested positive for a man's substance. Well, and I think also the, the ramifications of it are going to be far more reaching than just Camilla Valieva's career is going to be on hiatus for at least an extended period. I think we saw the toll that it's taken on the rest of the Russian team. I mean, Anna Shabakova sitting like that, you know, after her performance, Ateri, and the fact that Ateri Tudbrezi was called out by Thomas Bach. I mean, the last time that Thomas Bach made a, a strong statement you know, I couldn't remember. And a strong statement about someone who's coached an Olympic medalist. I mean, it might never happened in history that that statement came during the games. I mean, that's the level of this. I mean, this is news in, in legal forums. It's news in skating forums. It's realistically a, a ripple in world politics. I mean, this is not just 
a doping scandal um, as much as it is a doping scandal. There's such an amalgamation of factors there, right? You have the fact that she's a minor. You have the fact that this is a notorious coach. You have the fact that this is a country that's already been a little bit busted for doping to the point that they have to... A little bit. (laughs) A little bit busted, (laughs) Michelle. (laughs) Michelle, you can say that they were busted having a systematic national institutional doping program that resulted in the country not being allowed to compete under their own flag for multiple Olympics in a row. I mean, they've basically been competing under their own flag as ROC. I want to see them go back to Olympic athletes of Russia. Um, And this was supposed to be the last games that they were ROC or OAR. I don't think you can stand for that. Maybe they can go back to Russia for the Summer Olympics because they didn't get busted for any doping scandals at the Summer Olympics. But they've gotten busted for more than one, I believe, at this Olympics, including a doping scandal involving a 15-year-old. So it's like, nah, 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 nah. Until you sort out your Winter Olympics stuff, you are not allowed to come back as Russia. I don't think the Summer Olympics is going to be any different because one of the major players in the Valieva scandal and one that has by and large escaped plenty of scrutiny is the Russian anti-doping authority that allowed the test results to take 44 days. I know. More than double the absolute maximum allowed for an A sample. I mean, this we can talk about the fact that this is a coach who is notorious and this is a rink that obviously has had some we can say rumours or we could say something stronger than rumours in the past. It's not It's not rumours when they brag about it on national television and it's been translated numerous times. But the fact of the matter is that because Rusada has a level of culpability in this, I don't think we will see Russia come back as a country for either Olympics until these issues are proven that they have been stamped out if they can ever prove that because there is going to be so much suspicion for a long time. But I I wanted to get your thoughts. You two have watched a fair bit more figure skating than I have, but I think I've watched almost as much Olympics as you two have. (laughs) Have you ever seen a gold medalist and a silver medalist react the way that we saw the women's singles medalists react? Silver medalist, yeah. Not not to the extent, but I mean, you have Nancy Kerrigan's reaction to silver. You also have in gymnastics, Alina Mustafina, the like um, unimpressed gymnast face, that reaction. So, uh, Anna's I mean, gold medal reaction is the one where you're just like, you girl, you just want a gold medal. Like, <laughs> smile, at least be happy <laughs> because... It's stressing everyone else out. And to be fair, you don't actually have to smile for anyone. But at the same time, like, she looked like she'd been told a family member had died and was still trying to process it. Yeah, the fact that she had to kind of, like, you know, she was alone and she probably had an inkling that her teammate was very upset and her other rinkmate was, like, even more upset for to very different reasons, obviously. So I mean, was the other rinkmate more upset? It's a pretty close run between the two of them as to who was more upset after that competition. Depends, de- depends on which one you're counting as which, basically. <laughs> basically. And then all the coaches were preoccupied with those two, although there is a strange period of time when we did not know the whereabouts of Acheri and uh, Daniil Glykenkaus, so... um going to have to investigate that further which is probably going to be something they look into when they do the investigation on that coaching uh camp in general so it was very much a tough kind of 
situation for Anna Shabakova to balance. But also it is very true that like, you know, mental health is not prioritized at that rink. And it's probably kind of the case that they haven't really been shown or like it hasn't really been kind of demonstrated to them or kind of explained to them um, the ways that they should process kind of wins and losses um, at kind of bigger events, at events like this, um, especially since they just are kind of expected to take wins for granted. And the Olympics, I don't think is something that many of us would take for granted. I mean, getting to an Olympics as a spectator is not something I think any of us would take for granted, let alone competing, let alone winning a gold medal while competing. I mean, the, the fact that we saw that numbness was actually really chilling. It was a serious indictment of so much coming home to roost in that moment. You know, you think about how many gold medalists have celebrated to see someone who doesn't even look like they care is disturbing. So I don't think I, I don't think it's not looking like she cared. I think that it's very much like that shell shocked reaction. But at the same time, like you compare that podium, you would have thought that Kauri Sakamoto had won gold. And realistically, in the rest of that women's event, the other person's reaction that you would have thought was on the podium was Wakaba Higuchi because of the way that like she embraced Kauri after they found out Kauri had won. Like that photo of those two hugging with the Japanese flag, like that to me, you would assume that they are gold and silver medalists based on that photo alone because they are like teammates and competitors in the sense that they're from the same country um and it is reminiscent of 2018 when Izuru Hanyu, Javier Fernandez and Shoma Uno hugged and that was that podium um but yeah it's something look we're not gonna stop talking about it by any means and I think when figure skating worlds comes around at the end of March it's going to come up again and there is every chance that Camilla will not be able to compete because she'll have enough time for it uh, to actually make some sort of a case. Um, it's not getting sprung on her in the middle of the event. It's less than 44 days, so we might not have a B sample yet by then. Yeah, but I think that Cass can, like, as far as the ruling goes, it's like you've had a month and a half at this point. Like, I, it's, I not, it's not getting sprung on you in the middle of the event. That B sample will be back by then. I was mostly poking fun. It will be under <laughs> supervision from Puada and it will be tested very quickly. Uh, but we'll move to another talking point that it wasn't that it was scandalous. It was just that there was a very, very nervous 24 hours sober, and that was in the curling so before the competition even got underway we found out that someone in the Australian team had tested positive for COVID at the airport and we at edge of the crowd narrowed it down to about four athletes possible uh, and that athlete was Tali Gill and she ended up testing negative and getting out of that quarantine situation into the village just on time to compete in the early curling events. We lost a whole bunch of curling events, <laughs> curling matches uh, in the process after that. And then she suddenly tests positive again. Uh, and we then have the wait and almost the resignation that their Olympics is done. Like even Tali and Dean both post on their Instagrams being like, we're so sad that this is happening, but the rules are rules. The Australian Olympic Committee says that they're going to try and find a way to make sure that Tali can get to Australia rather than having to stay at a Chinese quarantine facility as well on top of that. And then at the last hour, they get a reprieve 
and they're allowed to compete in their last two matches and they win their last two matches as well. Um, I, maybe you can make excuses for Switzerland and be like, well, they didn't think they were going to play. Like, and then suddenly found out an hour later that they were. But then when they beat Canada, I think it was as well, it was just like, oh, wow. If we had a start of the Olympics like this, it would have been a whole other story. I mean, I think we just have to tell the Australian curling team next time they're competing that they're on a plane home at lunchtime and then at the last minute tell them, actually, you can compete this afternoon and see how it goes. And just every day wake them up and tell them, lunchtime, you're on your way out. Because <laughs> it worked. I mean, they, and I'm, I make fun, you know, we, we know that Tali Gill tested positive a few weeks before the Olympics and basically wasn't able to shake the viral shedding. So continue to test positive, even though she was clear. And so she was in and out of ISO protocols throughout the games, but the curling team was so much bigger than that because it was the Australians first entry into curling at the Olympics and Dean and Tali, you know, really turned the nation into curling aficionados and curling experts for a week. Um, you know, that, that's something that's pretty special about the Olympics. I mean, we only know the rules of mixed doubles. The single-gendered no, <laughs> no idea. is different. Just talk <laughs> to me later. Yeah, it's not the same. It's, why is it not the same? Because <laughs> we know how the rules for mixed doubles, room. at least. Yeah. There's way too many stones in single-gender curling. But then the other one, which it's not a dishonourable mention, and we actually didn't talk about this too much on our podcast, but Michaela Schifrin's performance. You didn't. I did when I was on. <laughs> we still didn't talk about it like that much. Like she competed in four events, five events nearly. And we probably only talked about it two or three times. But at the Olympics, so we realistically had the question of it's not if she's going to win a gold medal, it's how many gold medals she's going to win, similar to the attitude that we had for Simone Biles. So I think that this podcast is a bit of a moz for multiple gold medal chances. Uh, she ended up DNFing in multiple events and also didn't come away with any medal at all. Yeah, this was a pretty big surprise. I mean, we, we'd penciled Michaela Schifrin in to be one of the stars of the games and I don't think anyone was expecting the weather and the course to be as challenging as it was. I mean, we had so many of those downhill events had DNF lists longer than the finishers lists. I mean, that's not a common thing at the Olympics. These are the best gears in the world for them to not be able to get down the course shows that it was pretty tough. So it's not like Michaela Schifrin panicked or, or disgraced herself by any stretch, but it does show that the pressure, you know, probably did affect her to an extent. And I don't think anyone, I mean, if you'd said to me, Michaela Schifrin's coming away with no medals, I would have looked at you funny because well, so Michaela Schifrin's coming away with multiple DNFs, like more, I think it was three in the end for the games. Is yeah. That was where I was just like, what? Like a few fourth place finishes, maybe like things happen. But yeah, yeah. all those DNFs were the biggest surprise for me at least. Um, and also like on top of that, I think it's even like pays credit to Greta Small, who is an Australian even more because she didn't have a single DNF. Um, and she's in a pretty elite group as far as not DNFing at this Olympics is concerned because she competed in four events as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that that's part of what happens at the Olympics is it's unpredictable. It's not always the favorites coming in. That's partly why we love sports and we love the Olympics is that there are the surprises in the storylines, but this is one that I don't think any of us saw coming and 
I mean, Michaela Schifrin is still, in my mind, and I think in most people's mind, the downhill skiing goat. Michaela Schifrin has 70-something World Cup wins. It's miles ahead of anyone else and probably going to be pretty hard to touch. So it's not like she's done badly, but this is an Olympics I think she'll look back on with some disappointment. Yeah, you don't want your, like, bad day of, like, you know, the season or even kind of your career to occur on the Olympic stage because that's obviously when the most eyeballs are on you from around the world and you have a lot of people who are just kind of getting into the sports and you really want to kind of show to them why you are the GOAT in your sport. And it's unfortunate when you can't have that kind of a performance. But also, you know, ice can be slippery, snow can get too powdery for your liking, I guess, is the similar analogy there. And kind of these things just happen, especially in kind of these courses that can get tough when things get a bit temperamental. I was gonna say, yeah, and those courses are so like quick as well. Like the speeds you hit in downhill skiing and other alpine skiing events is not as quick necessarily as a bobsleigh track, but at the same time, like they're still off. getting they're still getting into the hundred k's per hour like marks. Yeah, absolutely. And you just, I mean, you don't want what happened to Schifrin happen, which is you know you have two or three of your worst days of your career in a row at the Olympics. I mean, that's the the worst case scenario. Rather than talking about more news events, we're going to go to our top five non-Australian moments. And the first one is someone that was a gold medal favourite from the start and went on to win her second Olympic gold medal. And that was Chloe Kim um, because her women's halfpipe performance was more dominant, I would say, than her 2018 performance this year. Yeah, a lot of really good momentum coming into this. Obviously, a name that's been kind of um, spoken about a lot in the lead up to the Olympics in kind of story, uh, in the lead up to the Olympics, kind of a lot of stories coming out about her and kind of the significance of her at this Olympics, especially. So it's really good to see her kind of really enjoying the moment, most of all, as she was competing at her events and um, excelling um, when the time counted. One, and she didn't just excel in the competition. I don't know if you've seen the press conference clip, but um, someone got a little bit hungry during the press conference and um, asked if any anyone had any snacks, following which I think it was seven different reporters came up with snacks for, for going, it's here, bringing them in like it's the second win of her day because <laughs> she just had the gold medal, obviously. Um, and I mean, it, it was an incredible performance on the half pipe. It was everything we expected from her, probably, and more. I mean, it was the form that she'd been threatening with all season and, and she put it together on the big stage. But for me, that little smile of satisfaction at the end of the press conference stuck out as well of like, I got lunch too. This is great. <laughs> yeah, she's one of those athletes that like, yes, she's really good at a sport, but her personality on top of her, like just power within her own sport makes her even more likable. Cause you know, someone that wins everything almost anytime they compete um, can actually be really unlikable for a lot of people, but you want to root for Chloe Kim because she comes across as just like a really nice and fun person. Yeah, I think she should be in the top five and, and we don't have this list, but uh, the top five athletes in terms of social media and personality. And I mean, Scotty James would be pretty high on that list too, but there are some standouts from the Olympics. 
and the next item we have, it's the only podium sweep from this Olympics, but the German podium sweep in the two-man bobsleigh event. Uh, so obviously we had Francesco Friedrich in the gold medal position and he won an extra gold medal these games. But I mean, they came close to doing two podium sweeps in the bobsleigh itself this year, but the fact that they only got one and it was a pretty convincing sweep as well made it even more impressive. They were like 0.2 of a second from locking out the men's bobsleigh medals entirely. I mean, yeah, it's insane. The German sliding program, I don't know what they've been doing for the last few years, but it is working. I mean, the women's monobob, I think was the only event in the sliding that didn't have a German gold medalist. Yeah, no gold medalist and no medalist full stop as well because Lauren yeah. Olpe just missed that podium. The, the Germans take gold and other things or they don't take anything. Like if there's no gold involved, they're not interested in yeah. the sliding. Um, and like on top of that, like we still even, we'll talk about just the rest of the German sliding success because they took out every gold in both the luge and skeleton, which included the first ever women's uh, skeleton gold medal for Germany. And then as well, like Laura Nolte smashed everyone in the two women event. But Francesca Friedrich, his performance as a driver, yeah, he's he's the goat of Bob's like quite clearly. I mean... We do throw that term around, but there aren't many people who can say that they've done the two-man, four-man gold medal double twice. And he and, could probably do it again. <laughs> and just, you know, casually 13 world championship gold medals. I mean, that's that's a pretty casual number to get to. Most people don't get to any world championships, let alone win one, let alone win 13. Yeah, and I think this season alone, he won seven World Cup events out of the eight that he competed in, in both events. Um, so he had like an off weekend, one weekend in the three-man and an off weekend in the four-man events where they didn't even podium at all. But like seven gold medals and then you do the double in the Olympics. Like I mean, just the goat. <laughs> I'm very glad I'm not a men's bobsledder because I feel like it would be really disheartening turning up to an event in hot form and seeing his name on the start list, go, oh, screw it, we're getting silver this week. So silver's a win, boys. Battling for the rush of the podium, man. That's sometimes just what it is. Well, and what we'll talk about next is another case where everyone else was battling for the rest of the podium <laughs> because Kaylee Humphreys in the women's monobob basically took a victory lap in her last run and still won by... I mean, not the length of the bobsled, like four or five lengths of a bobsled. Yeah, she was in insane form and she wasn't the favourite. Her teammate, Alana Myers-Taylor, was the favourite to win gold. Um, to be fair, though, that's based off this season's form. I think if people were only looking at world championships, Kaylee would have been the favourite because she won last year's world championship gold. Um, but just what a success story she's been this Olympics. She's transferred from Canada to the United States uh, in between 2018 and now. She's become an excellent two-woman driver, but also then on top of that, her uh, monobob performances have just been consistently good. She is almost always on the podium, and if not on the podium, She's in about fourth or fifth anyway, so she's not far off it. But just, like, it was, I think, two whole seconds ahead of Silver. Like, that's how well she did. Well, it's interesting. She's 
a little bit of a unique case because she has the power to essentially drive the monobob like a two-woman sled. Um, and she's obviously got the, the strength and the, the power and the muscle to do it, um, which is a pretty unique thing. But it does mean that she can drive it a little bit more relaxed than some of the other monobob drivers. And she's not fighting the sleds around the courses, which is really important here because this was a brutal course. I mean, there were only a handful of drivers who made clean runs where they didn't hit any of the walls at all. And Kaylee put together like most of them. <laughs> yeah. And also on top of that, her teammate, who we've already met, Alana Myers Taylor, won two medals at this Olympics one in the two women, one in the monobob. And as a result, she now has five Olympic medals and is the most decorated Black Winter Olympian of all time. Um, which, like, I mean, we're, our most decorated Olympian has two medals in the Winter Olympics, just like for our little old country. So to like have that to your name, she was the opening ceremony flag bearer, but missed out due to COVID. So she then got to be the closing ceremony flag bearer as well. So she got both of those on her name, which doesn't happen ever. Um, it, it's a shame that she got COVID during these Olympics because other than that, like she's been incredible and she was incredible all year too it's really exciting how like in all of these winter sports you have so much kind of innovation that you can see in the techniques that people are developing and that the ways that they are kind of handling and maneuvering in their various sports and I think that's why you see so much outstanding and exciting talent to the point where we can kind of throw out this goat term because innovation is happening right like that's what is really showing you the kind of how to exceed the limits limitations that you thought were placed on your sport um, through the way that you perform and through the way that you demonstrate that at the Olympics especially. Yeah, GOAT is only a term that exists within the time period that you're living in. In four years' time, there possibly will be a new GOAT because the sport has changed that much. Uh, we're going to go to the pairs competition in the figure skating because Swayne Hahn winning gold at home was probably one of my favourite moments of these Olympics. Michelle and I actually watched it together in the middle of recording an episode of Ascending Olympus in the middle of the games. Um, and we both got a little bit emotional <laughs> because this is a team that we've rooted for for years. But when they hit the quadruple twist lift, uh, I was just like, it's over. They have to win it. <laughs> if they don't, the Russians have cheated. Like, I was not going to stand for them not winning after their first element of their free skate because it just, it was that good. Yeah, kind of pulling that out. And it was really interesting afterwards hearing them talk about their strategy as well, where they were like, oh, we knew that the Russians, all three ROC teams were on their toes. They were hot on their heels and basically kind of mistakes um, could be really costly for them. So they made very small adjustments in order to boost that technical score. And with that, the quad twist came into play. But they also did a death spiral that was only slightly more difficult because so they chose to do uh, the forward inside death spiral, which is which is also worth a couple kind of, you know, a fractions of a point more than the ones that the Russians were doing as well in order to get that boost um, as, as well to make sure that they could have the best chances of winning gold at this Olympics, which is something that they've worked kind of, you know, this entire quad to get. They know the legacy of Chinese pairs, obviously, because their coaches were the first to get that Olympic gold in 2006. And they're just kind of, you know, kind of continuing that dynasty. 
And and to win a, a home team gold medal is always a really special thing and something that we don't really acknowledge enough because I think sometimes we take it for granted with some of the the major countries hosting the games. We're just like, oh yeah, they'll win, whatever. Um, but to to win after such a long time since the last Chinese pairs team won is something that was really special and really well-deserved recognition for Sway and Han. Yeah, and someone else that deserves a whole lot of recognition is Irene Wurst. Uh, she won her sixth gold medal at this Olympics, but that's not the amazing feat. She became the first ever athlete to win five gold medals at five different Olympics this year. And on top of that, she also won a bronze medal this year as well. Five Olympics. That is insane. I mean, we've only been alive for six or seven. Like, this is quad number seven for us. Um, the fact that she's won games for five of them is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't have really words for, for that kind of performance. Yeah, kind of it proves that, you know, longevity is possible in elite athletic sports and being at the top of your game and being able to kind of roll with the punches um, as the sport changes, as your body changes as well in such a way is its own special feat. It's really remarkable that you are able to hold out for that long, that you're motivated for that long and that, you know, it does require a lot of training but also a little bit of luck to make sure that injuries or other external factors don't plague you as well in that run so it's definitely something super duper noteworthy and super duper commendable on her part yeah and like we've actually saw quite a few five-time olympians at this games but she is by far the most successful of them and this is a club that includes sean white like it's not like it's five-time olympians where they've won their first gold medal at this game so they've won their first ever medal at this games which were there were cases of she's consistently won gold medals on top of other medals because she also has a handful of silver and bronzes to get her to this level of success but we're going to go to our last item of the agenda. And this is our heroes and villains of this Olympics. And the first hero you might scoff at, you might laugh at, because it's not actually an athlete. It's not even really a person. It is the mascot Bing Dwen Dwen, who just made wow. this Olympics all the better. I love Bing Dwen Dwen. Uh, he is shaped like a friend. And I think Michelle can probably detail the chaos within the Olympic Village for people to even get a Bing Dwen Dwen. Yeah, they put out some limited edition Bing Dwen Dwen. I think it was kind of, you know, your wonderful little red and gold kind of Lunar New Year inspired Bing Dwen Dwen. And there were just queues of people and people had to wait like hours, two or three hours in order to buy one of these limited edition Bing Dwen Dwens <laughs> and people still lined up. Like this is a very special merch drop by the Olympics. I thought utmost admiration for Bing Dwen Dwen was sincerely felt. Uh, for me, Bing Dwen Dwen was, was a great model because so Bing Dwen Dwen was kind of the, the version of Duolingo that we want to see, you know, Duo is obviously notoriously uh, a bad influence <laughs> wreaking havoc on the world, but Bing Dwen Dwen was just pure happiness and pure joy. And that's the almost the opposite of the duo. And um, for me, that was something that was kind of quite cool to see floating around the village. Well, also, I love the Bing Dwen Dwens that people were receiving for the podiums with like the gold wreath 
around the Bing Bwen Bwen. On top of that, like the mascot, like the people in the mascot uh, actual suits were having a great time. There was one person trying to do like off-ice axles and regularly crashing, mind you. There was a different one that they actually made go out there on figure skates that got pushed over by Wen Jingzui and then rolled around on the ice a little bit. And the figure skaters tried to bully that Bing Bwen Bwen into doing an axle. Succeeded ran away. That. I mean, they successfully bullied <laughs> that being dwed dwed not into doing an axle but just generally bullying you know that was the the revenge a little bit i think for the havoc that being dwed wreaked on the athletes village for the two weeks of the game definitely a little agent of chaos injected in there as well not cheat on levels of like of chaos no one can really attain that but you know <laughs> it's still a little bit there very reminiscent though figure skaters do love to bully a mascot whenever they're on <laughs> japanese ice and we see them with um, the various mascots that make an appearance and do some impressive little skating moves. A little bit of pushing and shoving occurs there as well, wouldn't you say, Jackie? Yeah, if it's not pushing and shoving, it's skaters trying to shove their heads inside the mascots' mouths with like what they do with Domo-kun. Um, th- there is just a weird relationship between figure skaters and mascots. I don't know if it's a rivalry or if it's like enemies to lovers kind of thing that's going on with them but we're gonna we're gonna talk about Bing Dwen for hours I could have done an episode just on how much I love Bing Dwen at this point but another hero even though the US media might try to convince you she's a villain is Eileen Gu because she's the first ever freestyle skier of any gender to win three medals at the one games and two of them were gold um and then on top of that, like the medals, like those medals that she won, very dominant performances. And then she was the face of these games in a lot of ways. Helps that she is very, like, she's very attractive. She's also young, which works because the face of your games needs to appeal to the next generation, but also needs to be of the next generation. Yeah. But at the it same time, we've, we're going to see her for a long time to come. It doesn't hurt that we've been seeing her in Vogue magazine for months. Um, <laughs> She is very photogenic, but incredible on skis. I mean, two golds and not that far off a third gold, really. I mean, a dominant performance anytime she got near the snow, really, is, is the only way to describe it. Um, so I think we'll be seeing some more of Eileen Gu um, over the next few years on the World Cup sphere in the x games and you know probably the next run at the olympics as well you can tell that she really like knows her value as well like in all the decisions that she's made in the lead up even if there was criticism even if there were people who kind of were giving her a little bit of hate for it she was you can tell that she fully backed all the decisions that she was making and all the choices that she was kind of making for her career in general to the point where she was even clapping back against them um, on various social media accounts which was also very fun to see she does yeah she has some fantastic tiktoks yeah her um just download a vpn take was the worst take she had but also like the photo of her with her grandmother who lives in china with those medals and the panda hat was so cute um, on top of that, like, I'm just going to say it, they don't like her because she's good <laughs> as far <laughs> as the US media is concerned because guess what? You guys got an Olympic gold medal out of someone that did switch countries from Canada to the United States by way of Kaylee Humphreys. So it sounds like it's just because she's winning stuff that you actually have an issue with it. At least that's my take. Um, 
And that's why, I, look, we didn't call the media a villain, but they could have been for their nonsense when it comes to Eileen Goo. And um, not which, just Eileen Goo, there was plenty of media nonsense in this game. That's, that's true. <laughs> um, and then our last set of heroes, because it's actually a two-for-one deal, and that is New Zealand's first ever Olympic gold medalists. And like Australia, when they won one gold medal, the Kiwis decided to win two gold medals at the one games, which unfortunately put them ahead of us on the medal table. But still, Zoe Sadoskisino winning that gold medal in the slope style event. And then on top of that, Nico Portias winning his gold at the very end of the Olympics as well in the men's half pipe on what was probably a pretty dangerous day to be competing, given how like windy it was. Um, Makes you feel a little bit happy for the little brother country that, like, we like to pick on most of the time. Absolutely. And, and the fact that, you know, Zoe and Nico are both so likable doesn't hurt. The fact that they're bronze medalists from last time around, they were both 16 at the time and looking to do better. And now at 20, they're gold medalists. I mean, there's a progression that makes them so likable and so easy to support. And we are thrilled that our little brothers have gotten some gold medals and now we'd like to remind them that that's it. That's all you get. The rest are ours. <laughs> <laughs> We're going back to our regularly scheduled programming of beating you. Yeah, well, they get the bled low and we get the Olympic medals. That's how it works. Exactly. Um, but on top of that, so they were the youngest ever medalists, the two of them from New Zealand uh, in 2018. Now they're the first ever gold medalists at a Winter Olympics. Um, they're both 20, 20, yeah, they're both about 20. So like they've got a few years left in them as well. A couple more Olympic cycles, which just adds to the excitement, see what they can do. But also in New Zealand, winning those medals, they're the only other Southern Hemisphere country that has won a Winter Olympic gold medal full, full stop. So we're still out the front with six golds total. And New Zealand have a third as many as we have, but like we had a dry spell for two Olympics as far as the gold medals are concerned. So we'll give you a couple of good Olympics and then it's your turn for a dry spell again. It's, it's stunning to me, given how much good skiing and snowboarding and, you know, the mountains that there are in the Southern Hemisphere, it blows my mind that only two nations in the Southern Hemisphere have ever picked up gold medals and I know that there are a lot less countries in the southern hemisphere um but it's still absurd I would have I would have thought that Argentina would have gotten one by now or Chile um just because they have good mountains they have good snow I also though I'm in the camp that like if you're gonna hold a winter olympics in the southern hemisphere it's either Argentina and Chile or it is New Zealand <laughs> it is not Australia our mountains are not good enough we what can hold mean? the ice events our mountains are not good enough for an Olympics. The, the you actual have bobsled issue... tracks everywhere. Have you not been to Sydney? There's plenty of hills there for bobsled tracks. Yeah, that's... yeah sure. Sure, Dan. Look, we're going to talk about the villains of the actual Olympics. And we have three. And the first one, which is related to one of our heroes, is the person that created an official, in air quotes, Bing Dwen Dwen account. And then it turned out it was just some NFT bro that was trying to make Bing Dwen Dwen NFTs. And look, we could have given the Olympics and um, the Olympic organizing committee of these games also a bit of a hero card because they clapped up that Twitter account real quickly because, you know, you don't own the property of Bing Dwen Dwen, so you cannot make it him an NFT. <laughs> um 
And like, if there's one thing when it comes to NFTs that you don't want to mess with, it's big corporations like the IOC. I mean, the Russian Olympic Committee have gotten away with messing with the IOC for years, but it's nice that they finally found a spine and really shut down the Bing Dwen Dwen NFT guy. Um, We are not fans of NFT bros on this podcast. Um, And you can read all about how much we dislike NFTs on our website, which we'll get to at another point. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the IOC does have a bit of a stronghold on Twitter. They're very good at takedowns when it comes to copyright and people trying to put up photos or fan cams of any kind. So, you know, they saw this one little Twitter account and they were like, ooh, a small fry and a traitorous small fry at that, trying yeah. to mess with our friend-shaped friend. I mean, I, I came very close to requesting that we put the IOC media policy on the villains list because it's as always uh, punitive and limiting but um, in this case NFT bro proved exactly why you know he managed to make the top of the list instead yeah and the next item on our villain list is one of the ones that should not like in no other circumstance would you have assumed at a winter olympics this is actually going to be on a villain list and that is snow because there are a few days that were blizzard-like conditions because of the snow that caused cancellations of events caused just generally dangerous dangerous conditions in other events that still went ahead um it this region was predicted to get like no snow for the games and then suddenly there was a blizzard and they received more snow than they had in three years how many times over the last seven months did we say no snow at these games did we talk about the artificial snow the fact that you know there were all these issues with it we talked to aerial skiers who were like it's great there's no snow makes for great aerials conditions we talked to mogulers who were like no snow great for moguls conditions we get to the olympics and all of a sudden it starts to snow. What is on with that? Like, come on. We had a good run. And then at the end tail of the Olympics, the snow gods were like, nah, this is going too well, man. We got to shake it up a little it's, bit. It's We're not going gonna to like... be a good run from here. Like, Yeah. The first week it was like bluebird day after bluebird day after bluebird day. Like there's a, the snowboard slope style event, gorgeous conditions. And then when it came to the free ski slope style event, it was like, nah, pack it up, boys. You're not going to do your qualifiers on Sunday. You're going to have to do them on Monday. I mean, ski cross was, uh, and snowboard Snowball cross. cross. Were, I mean, they were both totally affected by the snow. It made the conditions so difficult and the downhill skiing as well. I mean, that course was rendered almost unskiable according to about half the field in each case um, with the powder and the wind and the conditions. Well, yeah. And then once you threw the wind into the mix, like the men's ski halfpipe event was dangerous. That was one of the few events that didn't get called off on that day or postponed for a little bit because the men's 50 kilometer cross country skiing at the point where they had like 28.5 kilometer per hour winds, they were like, no, we're delaying this for a few hours. That for the first time ever, as a result, got turned into a 30 kilometer event. And then as well, the Alpine skiing event on that day just got cancelled because it wasn't safe because of the sheer amount of wind. And because of all that fresh snow, it was also making the visibility hard, even though it wasn't snowing at the time. And the women's area was compressed all into one day because it wasn't safe to jump. But I mean, I don't think anyone had on their bingo card that actual winter conditions were going to wreak (laughs) havoc on the Winter Olympics the way that they did. 
We really were about to turn this elite sporting event into an extreme sports event. It's already you're not extreme. Tell me it's extreme. <laughs> Have you seen Scott James? Have you seen Eileen? Are you going to tell me this is not an extreme sport? Even more extreme. It's like X, 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 X stream. <laughs> like so many X's. I mean, we do but- have the X games in fe- early February, late January. And, and the Olympics are supposed to be different from that. So that is a fair <laughs> point. I will give you that, Michelle. And our final villain, who we've, we've hinted at already tonight. Uh, she's she's a villain of her sport. We don't like her at all on this <laughs> podcast. And that is Terry Tuparetsu. Um because what she did to three young girls and also just the terrification of pairs, which I'm not happy about, as well as her daughter effectively getting the nepotism pass into the Olympics and then not doing very well. Um, she's the villain of this Olympics, easily. Like, number yeah. one villain. The I NFT mean, guy, maybe if he had been successful, but Terry. I was going to say, it's hard to top NFT bros, but Terry did manage it. Um it's fair to say that no one has been a more singular villain to this games. I mean, we talked about uh, the doping scandal earlier, but the fact is that even if that doping scandal is kind of swept under the rug in the long run or it's resolved, this Olympics and Terry Tudorezzi has done irreparable damage to Camilla Valieva, to Anna Shabakova and Sasha Trusova. I mean, these are just the three latest in what is now a very, very long line of incredibly talented young skaters who've been ruined by this coach. And I mean, we were talking off air and we've talked previously about the Bella Caroli of figure skating, but um, Ateri has has reached another level. And, and we saw that with the way that her medalists react. I mean, it's not just her athletes who get caught, but her athletes who succeed look broken as well. Yeah, it's a little bit of a long time coming for people who have followed figure skating at all. She has, um, since basically Sochi, um, when a lot of people do think about the iconic performance that Yulia Lipnitskaya gave in that team event, only to then falter dramatically in the individual event. Um, kind of since then, it was kind of, it, kind of the influence of a Terry was making itself be known to kind of the rest of the skating world and it's just kind of blown up from here this we talked a little bit in our episodes about the whole doping scandal that one of the things that she has done is really given some relatively unrealistic expectations about what kind of jumps women women skating should be embracing now with the quads and the triple axles to the point that it's forced the hands of a lot of the other top skaters from other countries to try these jumps in order to get even like remotely close to having a chance of getting on the podium, least of all thinking about the gold medal. Um, So she's had a significant impact. And the fact that she had gotten so ambitious this season, basically, and decided to, you know, dabble in what she can um, dabble in having some influence in the pairs and in the dance and, you know, her, um, one uh, male uh, skater at this Olympics, Maurice Kvidalashvili, in the men's as well, um, it was really kind of seeming like it was going to come to a head in some way or the other. We didn't think it was going to be a doping scandal, but we surely really did hope that there were going to be some repercussions to everything that she has managed to do. 
Well, and also, like, you, you mentioned Maurice, but, like, as far as her track record with men go, aside from Maurice, is that she has them be very successful in juniors and then they don't even reach seniors. Like, her top younger men's that she started training when they were, like, 10, 11 years old, none of them have actually hit the seniors' debut and either done well or just not made seniors at all because their bodies are so broken because her training methods are that bad and she uses the same method for everyone it's just a blanket well we get success for the girls so it's going to have to work for the boys which obviously doesn't work because boys are built differently to girls but also it's not healthy for the girls was, on top of that either i was gonna say it's not like it's a track record where her women's skaters turn out to have long thriving successful careers that never have any permanent lasting injuries or mental oh wait a second <laughs> yeah she has broken figure skating in Russia at the very least and it has broken the judging system in figure skating in a lot of ways because the figure skating judging system doesn't necessarily need an overhaul of the actual IJS system it needs an overhaul of the judges that's for sure because there is just too much bias towards her skaters because realistically Sasha Trusova probably shouldn't have made the podium Camilla Valieva still finished fourth with the free skate that she had and she was boosted by her short program but you can't actually tell me that she should have beaten Wakaba Higuchi by 10 points like Wakaba was amazing like Wakaba actually probably should have beaten her and you know what I probably would have accepted a ROC one and two and Japan three and four would have been better than what we were hoping for um but at the same time it's just like you've broken skating you've gotten your hooks into every event now because she also is a part of the coaching team as far as the pairs silver medalists are concerned um and like yes she's not the main coaches thank god um but on top of that as well like they probably actually went to her because of the scoring influence that she has in the sport because it was pretty obvious with her daughter's scores at the start of this season in the ice dance so it's like oh, this is the Terry boost that everyone sees in the ladies happening in ice dance. And she doesn't even coach this team. Um, and the Terry boost wore out when it came to the Olympics, which means that there are a couple of Russian ice dance teams that are rightfully pretty salty at the moment about the fact that they didn't get a spot at this Olympics because they would have finished a lot higher than this pair did. Yeah, kind of in the past, like, couple of seasons, you d definitely do notice that in the, the competitions that feel the most fair, the most just, the most reasonable in scoring are ones where her skaters are absent and especially ones that her skaters couldn't be eligible to compete in the first place. So things like four continents or Japanese nationals where you're like, oh, I understand how this worked and I understand why it felt felt like this and why it's kind of ended up this way even if I personally subjectively disagree with some issues here and there I can understand at least where the judges are coming from and once you hit competitions where a Terry and her skaters are at that completely kind of flips on its head where you see inconsistencies in the way that jumps are perceived in the way that jumps are called in the way that like UCS is just given in general so it does feel very much like such that the, the impact of this one coach and their team has become too vast. Yeah. And hopefully the investigations are 
find what they find and the correct and fair punishments are given out because right now I think a lot of people would be happy to see life bans from the sport for her but also all of the assistance involved because yes you can cut off the head but everyone else is still involved and it's still not necessarily just as terrible but pretty terrible in the grand scheme of things. But we could probably talk about how much we all dislike Terry and how much she ruined the figure skating event at this Olympics. It's a late March episode if anyone's tuning in then. <laughs> uh, but we're going to end the episode here instead. So Dan and Michelle, would you like to share your socials? You can find me on Instagram at m.ch.ll.g and you can find me on Twitter at m underscore ch underscore ll underscore g double underscore. And I am at the couple everywhere you want to go and find your social medias. You can find me at Dodzy161 on Twitter and Instagram. This has been Ascending Olympus. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Ascending Olipod. Ascending Olympus is a part of the Edge of the Crowd network. And you can find Edge of the Crowd on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Edge of the Crowd. You can also read any of our stories, even if they're about the Olympics and Paralympics other sport or maybe you want to hear our takes about nfts because we don't like them and we've got a couple of stories that have come out already we've got more coming out sooner at www.edgeofthecrowd.com uh ascending olympus is back on thursdays at 7 30 p.m but we will be having more frequent episodes during the paralympics so watch out for those it's most likely going to be three days a week rather than every single day uh thanks for listening and see you next week